may have some confusion over the matter that this is English as it ought to be spoken. <laughs> and I trust that there will be no difficulty in you understanding. In fact, I find out that the difficulty usually is not that people don't understand me, but rather that they understand me only too well. So I trust we're looking forward to being your midst. It's a privilege. And in fact, I was talking to Sinclair Ferguson just a couple of weeks ago. I'm fairly friendly with him and telling him that I was preparing to visit the great land of USA again, to which he is a regular visitor and is certainly an outstanding theologian, man of God, and it's just wonderful that I can meet him occasionally in a casual way. We generally host a minister's fraternal in our church, and Sinclair actually was speaking at the, the last one, and that the fraternal is comprised of about just more than 50% Presbyterians and the rest of us were maybe can be described as deformed Baptists. But, <laughs> but we managed to get along reasonably well. Just so that you can tune in to this accent, just very briefly, let me say this. <clears throat> I'm... I suppose, very grateful to the Lord that ever he decided or predestinated that I should be born in the land of Scotland. Now, everybody ought to love their own land. Scotland has about five million people. That's not a big country. But I believe that the contribution that it made to the Reformed faith and Presbyterianism, as you know it, was outstanding and far beyond the numerical strength of the country made a tremendous impact on the rest of the world as it produced mighty men of stature, giants in the faith. Who could think of John Knox to begin with? John Welsh, his son-in-law, Go down the line, Andrew and Horatio Bonner, Thomas Boston, Robert Murray McShane, a whole list of men, not even mentioning our covenanting forefathers who died for the faith, who were murdered, slaughtered, hung in the grass market in Edinburgh, so that James Renwick, 26 years of age, the last martyr, of the covenant died in the grass market in Edinburgh, one of many Scots who gave their life for the cause of Jesus Christ and his gracious and wonderful opportunity that he made through his sacrificial and atoning death that you and I might be able, because of that efficacious blood, because of that spotless sacrifice, be able to enter in, even this morning into the very courtroom, the throne of an almighty, sovereign, thrice holy God, and there make a request with thanksgiving 
And I think that is an inestimable privilege far beyond our understanding that certainly has gripped my soul. So, and I hope in a proper way, I'm proud to be a Scotsman. I don't like to be mistaken at any time for an Englishman. Or a, or a, but but uh, we have a glorious heritage. Sadly, it has now become largely apostate and we struggle to maintain the old ways and the old truths. But God helping us, we are determined by God's grace to maintain the old ways and the old truths. I'd like to read a few verses, if I may, and then turn to the Word of God. And I think you probably know that it's going to be from the second book of Chronicles, first chapter and from the seventh verse. In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this thy people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches, wealth, and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, and neither shall there any after thee have the like. Amen. And we pray that God in gracious condescension might bless even the public reading of his own precious word in our midst at this time. During Solomon's long reign of 40 years or so, the Hebrew monarchy gained its highest splendor, I think. This period has well been called the Augustan Age of the Jewish Annals. The first half of this, his reign was, however, by far the brighter and more prosperous. The latter half, as you probably know, was clouded by idolatries into which he fell, mainly from his heathen intermarriages. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart. It was doubtless a saving and sanctifying knowledge that Solomon prayed for, and he obtained not an apprehensive knowledge only or notional, but effectual and practical and a directive for his life. It is abundantly clear, I think, what Solomon requested from God was approved of God and graciously granted. His desperately needy request for wisdom having been given, so we might then have thought that that was the end of the matter. And how good it would have been if that had been the case. Sadly, though, it wasn't. And so we know there was folly and sadness 
that permeated the reign of Solomon. He had properly realized that his natural wisdom was totally insufficient for the business laid to his hand. And I pause here to say, and it would be good if we also grasped this factor. Our natural, finite wisdom is totally insufficient for the service of Almighty God, the advancement of his kingdom, or the proclamation of the glorious evangel. Fame and fortune, he did not ask for these things, but wisdom, a greater gift, and perhaps even more precious, as he rightly estimated the task before him was beyond his own abilities, or indeed any man's natural ability. And this is the circumstance that actually astounds me in that seldom, seldom if ever, do I hear heartfelt, genuine requests being made for this rare, precious commodity. Now, as I mentioned to you, bi-monthly, every second month, we have a minister's fraternal. And there's 25, maybe 25 to 30 ministers gathered there. Some of them, as I've said, in fact, probably the majority are Presbyterian and the rest are, are Baptist. And it's not that I go there with a critical ear, but seldom, if ever, do I hear any of them before they begin any ministry beseeching God that he would give them the wisdom that comes from above, which is superior far to anything naturally possessed. Tacitly, they may acknowledge this is a necessity. And friends, I want to say this morning, I think it is a critical, fundamental, foundational necessity for any person professing to be a Christian, whether it be a preacher or a member in the pew, that they ask God earnestly, daily, it is part of their curriculum, if you want to put it that way, that they say, oh God, please grant me the wisdom that comes from above. For the wisdom that I possess, I know to be threadbare, totally insufficient, unable to help me in the daily vicissitudes of this life. I need the wisdom that comes from above. Does this infer these dear folks have an ignorance of the great need and an indifference to a gracious provision? But how risky, I think, it is to proceed and ignore that gracious provision. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of his heavenly Father, who giveth liberally to all men and upbraideth not. There's the provision. All you have to do is humbly and seriously ask, and God will give you that wisdom. Now, I'm sure there's no genuine Christian who is proud enough or arrogant enough or ignorant enough to think that their wisdom is sufficient for the task that we have been given in the proclamation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ or of witnessing to some soul or in anything connected with the work of God particularly. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. Do you ask? 
how often? Do you see the need? Do you see the terrible chasm that exists between natural wisdom and the wisdom of God? Will we take right decisions, especially for the kingdom of God, based on our own innate natural wisdom? It's a natural inclination, I know, to rest on our normal abilities, and this, sadly, is to our great detriment. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all I getting, get understanding, says Proverbs 4 and 7. Now, it seems to me that all other gettings, according to God's word, are inferior to this one thing, get wisdom. Significantly, this practical outworking of wisdom must begin, the genesis of it begins at home. It must not end there. For he that has not, for example, his children in subjection with all gravity and does not take pains to seek to bring them up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord, how shall he do his duty as he ought in the house of the living God? Sadly, we have to concede, I think, that though Solomon was granted this great gift of wisdom and was commended for seeing this as a priority of his asking, sadly, as you know, there was not a happy outcome due to his sinful conduct. Now, if one, the wisest man in the face of the earth, who received the commendation of Almighty God and was granted this wisdom, could end up in such a catastrophic condition, what does that say for me or for you? I don't claim to have the wisdom of Solomon, but this much I know, that Solomon's God is willing to grant even a poor, unprofitable servant like me wisdom superior far to anything that I was born with, if, if, I will ask, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. Period, no, and it shall be given to him. So I would suggest initially this is a critical matter for all of us. There was no king like Solomon before or after. The major sin which tragically overtook Solomon was actually that of his one that his own mother, his own mother had specifically warned him against. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings, Proverbs 31 and 13. He also received an admonition to forget not the law or pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. So we might well seriously ponder that if the wisest man on the earth is yet prone and susceptible to folly and temptation with all of his wisdom, still to what excesses are we liable if he had the wisdom of God and acted in that fashion? And we have the provision of the wisdom of God for us, but we don't bother to ask for it. 
We just tacitly acknowledge, yeah, it's in the Bible. You know, I must remember that verse, you know, if any of you like wisdom. We have to ask. By faith then receive and go in the strength and power of that. So practically, to what excesses and foolishnesses are we prone any who would disdain to ask Almighty God for the divine assistance that he has made for our labors, worship, and daily living. So unbelievable, though it seems, here is the wisest man on earth, blatantly violating the basic principles regarding which, as previously stated, he had been well warned about. What hope then for you and I if we carelessly ignore God's provision and his commands. Well, Satan will certainly blind us to that. Satan will certainly try and convince us we are wise enough why our fellow saints and others that we respect and they think we are pretty good Christians and very wise and even maybe we're reasonable preachers and everything else. And what is all of this if it is undergirded only by our own innate, natural, corrupted wisdom. If any of you like wisdom, let him ask of his heavenly Father, who giveth liberally to all men and upbraideth not. Now the glory of Solomon's piety is stained, sadly, as you know, and besmirched by his departure from God and his duty in his latter days, marrying strange wives, worshipping strange gods, is this debauchery, this wicked sinfulness being practiced by the wisest king on earth? Yes, it is. Can it be that such a privileged one as Solomon could descend into the ranks of vile idolatry from the pinnacle of wisdom and piety? Yes, so it seems. Was it the cancer of complacency, the lust of the flesh, or a spirit of indolence? Did he morally collapse overnight, as it were? Truly, we know from personal experience, I think, that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Well, we are exhorted, are we not? Take us the little foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines of tender Great Song of Solomon, 2.15. Even the world has its own proverb, prevention is better than cure, they say. Shall Solomon fall? Shall he fail? He that was the beauty of Israel and so great a blessing and pristine example to his generation. Yes, sadly, it is all too true. And the scripture is faithful in relating and repeating it and referring to it long after it passed into obscurity, even down to our own present times. There was no king like Solomon, who was beloved of his God, but even that did not prevent him from becoming a spectacle, so that we might once again lament, the beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? To Samuel 1:19. If this could be recorded of King David and Solomon, with what caution or circumspection should you and I proceed? 
And is it not a salutary reminder that we err greatly if we omit to utilize the provisions that Almighty God has made for us and bequeathed to us that we might walk the narrow highway that is so beset with many dangers and temptations and afflictions on every hand? I say, my friends, God's wisdom is our great necessary need. There is something attractive and winsome, is there not, about a man who has wisdom. Wisdom tends to enhance a man's person and is to his honour that his ability is not self-centred but has the beneficial effect of being a blessing to others also. Foolishness and ignorance have the totally specific opposite effect. In fact, Scripture asserts, A rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding, of him that wants a heart. Proverbs 10.13 Seek, my friends, advice or wisdom only from the wise. This would seem to be stating the obvious, but sadly many don't follow this simple admonition. They would rather seek out some confidante who is more likely to concur with their plans and their desires. He that tilleth his land shall be satisfied with bread, but he that followeth vain persons is void of understanding. Proverbs again tells us. What a blessing it is when we can engage with the relative few who have good understanding who have a good measure of inward experience of the grace of God, that is wisdom in the inward parts. It is basically at least a man of some discernment who seeks counsel from a wise man, even if he senses that he may not receive the words that he would prefer to hear. And we have to return to Proverbs again for this advice. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, says Proverbs 27 and 6. Now, my sad experience over more than 50 years in the ministry now is that there are many people that want advice. Well, that's fine. And so they come for advice. But, sadly, they have already made up their minds regarding the matter and the issues, and they will not be changed in their resolve. The stark truth is that all of this is through the want of sound wisdom, or more properly, a genuine desire for good wisdom, which will ultimately bring us under the chastisement of God's rod if we disdain it forsake it or ignore it these are facts this is no fantasy that I've got up here to manufacture these things I find many Christian people perambulate through life they sail along they've got one or two verses that they can parrot out but when it comes to the application of these to their daily lives then well we all have difficulties there I think It's one thing to hear and to nod in agreement, and that's good. But the implementation, that's the crunch, isn't it? When we have to apply it, when a situation arises, I've had one or two in the past two or three months 
one or two minor accidents with my car, and which I genuinely believe that I wasn't really responsible for. So when it happened, and I looked at the front of my car and saw that it was mangled and mashed in, did I say, hallelujah, all things work together for the glory of God, praise God, let it happen again. It's a great chastening experience. No chastening for the present seemed grievous but joyous. Nevertheless, afterward, he yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. No, I looked on in despondency, in a measure of despair, and thought, not again. <laughs> it's a reality. But it's the implementation. But however deep down I knew, it is nevertheless true that all things do work together for our good. And so we see in all of these things, the stark truth is that we generally have a want of sound wisdom or more properly a really genuine desire for good wisdom. Now, my wife and I, we, our families are gone now, so we, each morning we have a little quiet time. And, well, it may be a bit repetitive, I agree, but there are three major things. First, Lord, we approach you, cleanse us from all defilement, filthiness of the flesh and the precious efficacy of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, grant us now a new, fresh, infilling impartation of the Holy Spirit from above that we might conduct ourselves in a measure, at least a measure, consistent with the divine principles and precepts. Thirdly, Lord, grant us the wisdom that comes from above for our own wisdom, his threadbare insufficient, even for the simplest task that might confront us in our daily walk. Yeah, it's maybe a bit repetitious. But I believe it's good repetition. And personally, I would testify and I feel that the Lord answers these prayers regularly and that we are able to save ourselves maybe from much foolishness, going up cul-de-sacs, terminuses or whatever. And God keeps us on the straight and narrow generally. But, but, and I want to emphasize this, with all of this, I still have to bow before God and say, Oh, Lord, you know, I am yet an unprofitable servant in thy sight. Help me, Lord, for here even the godly man ceases. Give us the wisdom that comes from above. And the principle of cause and effect will ensure that if not immediately but ultimately we will suffer for our indiscretion and neglect and that the rod of chastisement that comes to us for that is vastly different from the chastisement of our father in heaven when he comes to correct us in love and grace and kindness initially solomon proved his wisdom by diligently laying up knowledge and this was manifested in the classic case that you'll be well familiar with of settling those two women's dispute over the newborn baby. Remember? Then the king, as judge, Solomon summing up what had been said on both sides, which were only bare assertions without proof, the one affirming what the other denied, the other denying what the other affirmed, the one said, this is my son that liveth, your son is dead. And the other said, Nay, but thy son is dead, and my son is the living. And this 
he repeated and presented before them that no determination could be made by what had been said on either side and that some other method must be adopted. And that method was simply the employment of the wisdom that God had graciously granted him. Do we need wisdom? Do you ask for wisdom every day for the tasks that are laid to your hand? Before you go out to witness, every Tuesday we have an outreach. We get people in from the street. Some have never even heard the gospel. So I just begin by saying to them, you know, if you don't get saved, you'll end up in hell for eternity. No, we need wisdom. We need to bait the hook. We need to begin to draw them in. And then always and ultimately, because I told our folks when we have maybe about 12 to 15 workers every Tuesday, some inside, some out in the street, and I said to them, here's the mandate. This is the objective. No person must come in here and sit down at these tables with us on one-to-one conversations and leave this place without clearly hearing Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And up to now, in one-to-one conversations over maybe 15, 16 years, we've spoken, I reckon roughly, I don't keep a tally, to well over 6,000 people in one-to-one individual conversations. But remember, friends, none of them, we never came in here to discuss the weather, a sports program, or anything else. We came here to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only remedy for lost and perishing man's horrible, terrible predicament and condition. And I think that was a good... Anyway, Solomon was greatly... And I'll begin to draw to a conclusion here. Solomon was, was greatly respected and loved by the people. We are told... What a great reputation he had among his people and by this and other instances of his wisdom which would have a great influence upon, I think, the smooth conduct of the affairs and ease of his government. They feared the king and highly reverenced him, did not in anything oppose him and were afraid of doing any unjust thing. For they knew if it ever came before him, he would certainly discover it for they knew that the wisdom of God resided in him. Now this would be wonderful, wouldn't it? With a happy ending. We all love a happy ending. Definitely. How I wish there was a happy ending here. But I'd have to say, the heading to this brief and final conclusion would have to be, How are the mighty fallen? It's a difficult exercise for us perhaps to try and imagine how a man so richly endowed with treasures of this world could sink into such a pathetic, sinful, moribund condition which befell Solomon in his latter days. What a stock warning to all of us that Satan's devices and entrapments and temptations can fell, slay even the most wise and virtuous of men. Familiar though we may be with the simple admonition, boast not thyself of tomorrow, 
for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. It's nevertheless worth repeating and embracing despite our being well acquainted with this caution. It's definitely worth pondering it once again when we see the havoc that can be wrought by ignoring it. Among the excesses of Solomon which led to his downfall, downfall were the love of strange women. First Kings 11 and 2 says, And he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And I've often thought, what a punishment. He had 700 mother-in-laws as well. <laughs> he had a massive accumulation of silver and gold. And I'd added to all of this, he had a phenomenal accumulation of horses and chariots. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen who may be stowed in the cities for chariots. Sadly, this led to this tragic, astonishing, grieving statement. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wife's turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. 1 Kings we read that better I think better is a little righteousness than great revenues without right again Proverbs tells us we have before us and considered the great abundance, the allurement of wisdom are set forth in Scripture, but here is also a counter-allurement, the attraction of sin, and the clear indication that the passing of the years, my friends, and the diminishing of our physical and mental capabilities do not necessarily subdue our baser passions as Solomon's later years confirm. The world, the flesh, and the devil are ever out to thwart our overcoming these temptations and difficulties. But the word of God is clear and stark in this respect when it says, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. In Matthew 10:22. Vigilance, vigilance, even in our aged years, can never be relaxed as Solomon's instance shows us. I will finish here and say this. And so we find that the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God both are seeking to woo man to their particular cause. Sadly, the source of man's wisdom has no ingredients of lasting or eternal value, even though it is spread before us as is God's wisdom. What therefore shall we say of the culpability of ignoring the gracious, condescending invitation of Almighty God when he says, if any of you like wisdom, let him ask of his God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that waver is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord, says James 1 and 5. Wisdom 
wisdom is the principal thing. What and how shall we proceed? And how shall we serve the living God, the thrice holy almighty Jehovah God, on the basis of our own wisdom? And maybe then, if that's the case, and we think that suffices, then maybe we won't be singing familiar hymns, but we'll be singing the great anthem of Frank Sinatra, remember, who said, I did it my way. But God says, your ways are not my ways, but my ways are higher than your ways. And I trust there's something of this in the feeble exposition I've sought to bring to you this morning might stir up these thoughts in your mind. I want to just very briefly pray and then I'll ask your pastor to come and conclude this gathering. Let's pray. O God, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, how is it possible, Lord, that such miserable wretches as I, although redeemed and cleansed in the precious efficacious blood of your only begotten Son, should yet be allowed entrance access to the footstool of almighty glory where the transcendent glory of God diffuses through the whole realm where the angels continually sing thy praises. Worthy, worthy, worthy as a lamb that was slain that is now made alive. And I, Lord, unworthy, unfit to serve thee in the least yet through the power of the efficacious blood and the adoption into the family of God, even a poor wretch like I might have the mighty privilege of serving the Almighty God. I pray, Lord, you will bless thy people here, your servant who ministers to them, that they may have a salutary impact and effect and those poor lost souls that are bound in every hand surrounding us. And if you will answer even a measure of our feeble petition, shall we not have further and increasing reason to give you all the praise, the glory, and the thanksgiving I ask in Christ's name and for his glory.